Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. I'm Dr. Risha Desai, and today on Raise the Line, I'm happy to be joined by Dr. Jeffrey Burns, Chief of Critical Care Medicine at Boston Children's Hospital and Professor of Anesthesia at Harvard Medical School. Dr. Burns did some early research on the impact of COVID-19 in children and leads a monthly discussion with pediatricians from around the world on the implications of the disease in kids. I'm looking forward to asking him all about that and other aspects of his work on today's show. So thanks so much for being with us today, Dr. Burns. Thank you for having me, Rishi. So I, I'm curious, do you mind just kind of starting with a little bit about yourself and your own path into medicine? Yeah, as you noted, um, I do critical care for children. When I was in medical school, I kind of quickly gravitated to the notion that uh, critical care uh, combined physiology at the bedside, and that was something that I loved. And so I, the big decision was whether I did adult or pediatric, I chose pediatric and trained at Boston Children's Hospital, was a medical student there, a resident, a fellow, and now faculty uh, after some 30 years. And uh, you and I had some joint training experiences together there as well. I love what I do. A lot of people think that taking care of critically ill children must be very stressful. It is. They often ask about burnout. And what I often say is uh, burnout's boredom and frustration. Burnout's not acuity. And so I love what I do because over 98% of the children I take care of are going to live. They're going to go on. They're going to outlive me and do great things. So I've been fortunate to find the field that I really enjoy. It's interesting you said that boredom and frustration, because I think that captures it. I've never quite heard that before in my life. So that's a beautiful way of saying it. So obviously you're not finding what you do boring. It's not frustrating. Maybe at times, everything is, I suppose, at times. But how did your role then morph into open pediatrics and how did that develop and how has it evolved over time? About 10, 15 years into my career, several things happened that I didn't expect. One was I got tapped to be the internal candidate for the chief of service. And it's one of those events in life where you weren't looking for it and it happens. And when I became chief of service, I realized that I had a program that I could kind of put my own stamp on to do uh, what I thought was important. And what it occurred to me was that uh, very bright uh, physicians like you were coming uh, to train as residents and fellows coming within the walls and we would share knowledge. And I distinctly remember you being on rounds with me and, um, and you were very bright back then, by the way, I have to say that, but it seemed so artificial that you had to come within the walls to get some great training and why couldn't we scale knowledge more effectively? And in brief, uh, around that time, the U.S. State Department started using me to talk to physicians overseas who were caring for critically ill Americans. And so a child would become critically ill. The U.S. Embassy would get involved to try to facilitate care and perhaps transfer back. And I became the medical liaison. And um, I was doing this for a girl from California, an eight-year-old girl who was critically ill from sepsis in Guatemala City. I was talking with her physician and going back and forth through this teleconferencing. And I remember one night when I thought I'd pushed him too far to do something. And the link came up the next morning and he said, Dr. Burns, she's alive. She's getting better. And fast forward about two months, I'm in the ICU and I got called to the front desk and there's a, a family of parents smiling at me. And there's a little girl uh, and she father leaves down and he says something to her and she breaks off and she runs at me and she high fives me and I high five her back. And I'm thinking, my gosh, I don't, I don't know who these people are, but they seem to know me. And the dad is now right in front of me. And the dad said, Dr. Burns, this is Nina. This is a little girl from California who you took care of in Guatemala city. 
And I looked down at her at that moment and I, I looked at her and I thought, my gosh, we did this through the internet. We collaborated our care through the internet. And almost as immediately, this is a true story, almost as immediately, I thought, how many other kids are we not doing this for? And thus was born openpediatrics.org, which basically is designed to scale knowledge to clinicians around the world caring for critically ill children. And what we did was I assembled a research team of adult learning experts from the Harvard Graduate School of Education and learning technology from MIT, put that team together, and that's where openpediatrics.org came from. I don't usually get chills. I just got chills, Jeff, when you just said that. That's an incredible story. And the fact that your mind went to how that could scale out is, is a beautiful testament to how your mind thinks. Do you mind sharing a little bit more about open pediatrics, specifically around, I know you guys have a ventilation kind of treatment teaching tool that I think is really cool and, and very interactive. And maybe any sort of anecdotes you've heard around how people learn through that modality? Sure. So the, the conceptual underpinning is based on what, something called the Kolb learning cycle. And what it basically means is uh, adults learn in one of four ways. And I don't need to know what quadrant you best learn in. I simply need to know that I need to pull you through each of the four quadrants on a learning exercise. And as I do that, you'll imprint about 25% more of the material for each quadrant that you go through. And so all of the content is embedded in that way. And so some of it's basically see the expert explain. Oh, it's one quadrant. People like that quadrant. Others see the expert do. Don't explain it to me. Just show me how you do that. In our house, the example I always give is um, when I get a new iPhone, I read the manual, everything about it before I touch anything. My wife, she gets it out and she's touching everything. She wants to play with it. Now you do is the next quadrant. Now you demonstrate that you can do that. You've seen the expert do. You've watched the expert do. Now you do. And now you discuss what you did. Those are the four quadrants of the cold learning cycle. And so the curricula on OP are embedded with that. And you're referring to the simulators. And so there are online simulators for the courses related to the intensive care unit, whether it's mechanical ventilation, peritoneal dialysis, hemodialysis, and soon coming, in fact, in the next month, an ECMO simulator and a cardiopulmonary bypass simulator. They can be standalone or they are embedded as exercises. This curricula is used by all of the Harvard medical students in their third year. It's used across the world. It's used at a nursing school in South Korea. I've heard from physicians at Moscow Children's Hospital number nine that open pediatrics chain burn care. I heard from a physician in Tierra de Fuego who told me at a conference, he came up to me and said, I am the only pediatrician in Tierra de Fuego. And Rishi, I'm ashamed to tell you, I didn't know where Tierra de Fuego was. And um, he said to me, now that open, I have open pediatrics, I feel connected. I don't feel like I'm making all these decisions by myself. It's used uh, throughout China, Beijing Children's Hospital, Shanghai. It's used in every country in the world, including one very brave physician in North Korea, intermittently logs on. I also didn't know where that was located. So I did a quick Tierra del Fuego search, uh, southern tip of Chile. Is that accurate? Tip of Argentina. He's at the very tip of South America. Okay, very good. So, I mean, that, that's a phenomenal application of what you guys are doing and, and very interesting, obviously, especially now with COVID, everything being remote. In many ways, it feels like you're ahead of the curve on that. But do you mind now kind of jumping over to COVID and specifically how Boston Children's clinically has adapted to that or coped with the cases that you've seen? Yes, this is still open pediatrics. And so it, it turns out I run the only international webinar, pediatric intensive care webinar on this. And this is where MISC came from as well. So 
in brief, the story is it's Saturday, March 14th, and I'm on my laptop in the other room. And several colleagues, one from CHOP, one from DC Children's, my colleagues, uh, chiefs of critical care, are asking me what's going on in Seattle with children. Are they, you know, does he have any critically ill children? And so I quickly realized this is no way to collaborate here. Why don't I use the open pediatrics platform in the distribution list? And I'll invite people from North America. Let's get on tonight at 5.30. So about five hours later, we had about 90 hospitals throughout North America on this webinar. And thus began the international webinar. The next night, we did it three nights later, I invited uh, all my European colleagues because it's early in the morning for them. Beijing and uh, Shanghai are 12 hours uh, in front of us. And so it was early in the morning for them, but they got up. So now we have physicians from six continents, uh, over now almost 200 hospitals. And what started happening was a totally unexpected, Rishi. People started using the chat to describe if they had a critically ill child in their ICU. And so you could look at the chat and all over the world, Karachi, Beijing, you know, Auckland, and it became a point prevalence study. Well, the next thing I know, we're now nearing the end of March and now I'm getting requests from the World Health Organization, the CDC, European and the US, the NIH, you know, Dr. Burns, can we join your webinar? Because in part, people started to realize it was one of the early ones and it was six continents. It was truly international. And what I would do is, among other segments, it's an hour and something. And so one segment was always report from the field. And this revealed what the the journals are accelerating the peer review process. There are preprint servers. But what people were hungry for was more immediate information. And the only thing that was surrogate for kind of a peer review process was to hear directly from your colleague. I am the chief of critical care at Wuhan. And I'm telling you, this is what happened. And so that's what I did. I started interviewing him. So we started with him on March 18th. There was a publication in pediatrics about what happened to children there, but it was, there's nothing better than hearing directly from him. And then of course, we went to Bergamo. We would just basically follow each of the outbreaks around the world and hear these live reports among other things. Then in late April, in the chat from Western Europe, people started reporting, we're seeing something else. We're seeing almost like a Kawasaki. In fact, one physician from France used that word, Kawasaki. And then an Italian colleague saw that and said, I, we saw someone like that. So after that webinar, people pointed that out to me. Did you see the chat? Cause you know, the chats, it's got many hundreds of comments. And I thought, well, that's odd, what is that about? And lo and behold, I get a call from my colleagues at the Royal College of Pediatrics in London. And they said, we need to have a webinar. Something's going on. We we think we're seeing something else. Can we devote the entire webinar on May 2nd to this? And I said, of course. And so we did. And it was at that webinar that Dr. Mike Levin presented his unpublished data. And uh, that night, we had, oh, several thousand on. The European Commission was on. I was getting these crazy invitation requests. And he showed a slide when everyone had an aha moment. He said, we've just done this data today. And he showed the prevalence of COVID-19 in London, in greater London, across the entire population. He then showed the outbreak of this inflammatory syndrome, which we were only calling an inflammatory syndrome at, at that moment. And he said, there's the outbreak of this inflammatory syndrome, which is distinctly different. These are antibody positive, PCR negative. And lo and behold, it's trailing by about six weeks. That then appeared in JAMA 
two weeks later. He wrote the editorial in the New England Journal later for the others that came out. We formed that night several research groups in the United States. Adrian Randolph, my colleague at Harvard, led the CDC effort. She then reported in the New England Journal. He led the effort in Europe that was reported in JAMA. And so the next thing I know, I've got editorial offices are listening in, let alone the uh, WHO, et cetera. Because again, people realize we're getting almost a point prevalence out of this unexpectedly. We didn't anticipate that a webinar would ever be this, utilize this function, but it, it was live. It was authenticated by the individuals who were there. That's a really interesting way of doing a study. It makes me wonder what other sorts of tools are there for gathering live data now? I mean, could we do data searches through social media where people report symptoms maybe even, or you know, it makes you really ponder all the other data sets that are out there that we could tap to get real life data or real-time data to compete or react to what's happening with COVID-19. Have you seen other examples of that? Yes, HealthMap is one example of that. HealthMap is um, something my colleague, John Brownstein, again at Children's Hospital started about a decade ago. And he was one of the first to kind of tap social media as uh, sentinels and surrogates of outbreaks of infectious disease. I think the difference here, Rishi, and I know you see it as well, is that there was something about the external validity of knowing that this is my colleague or this is our colleague from Beijing Children's Hospital. And she's interviewing our colleague in Wuhan. And the validity of that data is uh, self-evident. And so it was the only mechanism that was able to move almost as fast as the virus that we had to tell us, this is what we're seeing, this is what we tried to do, et cetera. And then, yeah, um, the first point prevalence study in North America, we did, I'm the senior author in the JAMA PEED study, and we looked at you know, the incidence in April of critical illness from COVID-19 in children in North America. And that was the report that said, yeah, in North America, it's following Europe and China. And the good news is they rarely become critically ill. The bad news is they're capable of becoming critically ill if they have comorbidities. But fortunately, the mortality rate is, is far less. You worked with the CDC on this. And the CDC in recent weeks and months has come under a lot of pressure because of how they reacted to COVID. Some of that has been negative criticism of, of their response. What you did was the opposite. You obviously worked on something that was very positive. The CDC identified something with your team and, and many other teams and collaborators to identify this condition that otherwise may not have been recognized as quickly or, or maybe not recognized as, at all. I'm curious how you think about the CDC's reputation at this point in time in light of the very positive work that you guys have done with them. Well, I think I share everyone's concern that political interference and morbidity and mortality, weekly report and convalescent plasma, those things have to stop. But I do have to say this, the CDC was, you know, as, as I noted, was on the call every webinar. They immediately turned to my colleague, Adrian Randall. They had funded her previously 30 center study in North America of vaccine effectiveness in children. And so they immediately said, we want you to continue that funding for vaccine effectiveness, but can you also turn it on for COVID? And then when NISC became an entity, can you turn it on for that? And so they instantly funded it and took advantage of the network that they had already previously funded. And that went up so fast that, you know, here she was reporting that study in the New England Journal uh, almost nine or 10 weeks later. That's about as fast as you can go. I should also say that WHO did the similar thing. And so I saw firsthand how the uh, European and the American CDC responded 
almost immediately to the MISC entity and the WHO. I can bear witness to that. It couldn't have been any faster, more aggressive, more determined than what we got. That's extremely reassuring. I mean, I think right now, more than ever, we need strong leadership from public health entities and trust in public health entities. So I'm really happy to hear you say that. Do you mind just, we have a lot of parents in the audience speaking to MISC, and now that some weeks and months have passed since first identifying it, any sort of new things you've identified about it, or what would you recommend people know about MISC? Yes. And so to quickly break them out, SARS-CoV-2 can infect children, but the impact in children under 10 from COVID-19, fortunately, it's very rare that a child becomes critically ill, and most of them have chronic conditions. Now, MISC is a remnant of the infection. It's the child successfully fought off SARS-CoV-2, probably so successfully that no one even knew the child had any kind of infection, was ill at all. But about six weeks later, these children, and they fit a profile where they're mostly teenagers. They're not young children under 10 by and large. Many of them also have chronic conditions such as uh, asthma and things like that. And about four to six weeks after they were initially infected with SARS-CoV-2, it's basically their own immune response, which successfully fought off the infection, is now in an accelerated fashion, causing fever, abdominal pain, sometimes pneumonia-like condition, rash. And some of those children need to come into the hospital. It is true that few children have died from MISC. But it's also important to remember, even with those early cases in New York, where three children did die from MISC in their teenage years, it's important to remember that there's 14 million children under the age of 14 in New York State. And so what we have to keep in mind is, what's the magnitude of critical illness? And fortunately for both MISC and for SARS-CoV-2, COVID-19, its impact on causing death in children is very, very limited. With MISC, we have proven effective therapies. We know what to give to those children. And so they get sick, but they also recover very fast, faster than the children who get COVID-19 recover. Yeah, I appreciate that. And I think for so many people, it's hard to wrap our heads around big numbers. And so, you know, you hear the numerator and that can be quite scary, but as you pointed out, the denominator is quite big. And And so that helps put it in context. You know, when I was a resident working at Boston Children's, you taught me many, many, many things. You kind of alluded to the fact that we work together. And those are really, in my mind, the best aspects of training, learning so many things, especially from you. I think you're a phenomenal teacher. I'd really love for you to pick any topic that you think you'd like to kind of teach our audience about. It could be anything related to pediatrics or COVID or uh, MISC or, or anything at all that you think that there might be a knowledge gap around or maybe a myth around that you want to debunk, anything like that at all? I think I would address vaccines. Obviously, we're all talking about it. I think there's two things I would emphasize. A lot of the distrust on vaccines emerged following a publication which has irrefutably been proven to be false data. It was fiction, it was made up. It caused great harm. Uh, But that triggered the belief that vaccines were somehow the source for neurodevelopmental problems in children. And uh, we haven't recovered from that. That was in the late 90s. And as an example how into the public can come what seems to be a notable or memorable or important issue, but, you know, we've all got to do our independent research to find out, is, is that true? And that was not true. 
uh, vaccines are by and large extremely safe. And in fact, in the last 100 years, nothing has improved pediatric health. Nothing comes close to vaccines. And in lowering the death rate and early childhood mortality and in lowering morbidity. Now we've got a vaccine coming. And what's happening right now is the so-called phase three, where they're assessing whether it's safe and whether it seems to work, safety and efficacy. But we won't know in children the results of these trials because they're not underway right now in children. Children aren't enrolled, pregnant women are not enrolled, and the very elderly are not enrolled in these so-called phase three studies. And so what that means is we all have to maintain vigilance because children and the very elderly and pregnant women won't have a vaccine for at least another 18 months, if not longer. That's really helpful. And, uh, and that timeline is helpful as well. I think a lot of folks are curious about that timeline. So thanks for sharing your thoughts on that. You know, maybe a final question is just your advice. You know, we have a lot of folks that are training up right now to go into the medical field, uh, nursing field, PAs, you name it. What would you tell these early healthcare professionals as they're sort of emerging into a world that's obviously very different from what it was a year ago about charting their path in, in clinical medicine? Um, I would encourage anyone who thinks that they're interested, I would encourage them to do it. Being in healthcare, I think, is one of the most satisfying things I could imagine doing. You're caring for other human beings. If you help them a little or you help them a lot, you were there to make a difference in their life. And sometimes that means helping them at the end of their life. And that's as important as a successful resuscitation. It's ongoing learning. You have to keep learning for your whole life. But I can't imagine anything more important right now. Um, there are many important things that are required in society, many important jobs and professions. But, you know, a profession where you can help others, that the whole effort is to do good, and that around the world, collaboration with others, nothing crosses borders in our polarized world like a willingness to care for a critically ill child. We don't agree on food or water rights, but you should see this collaboration. Everyone drops their egos and their needs at the door when it's talking about, all right, we got to pull together. What do we know about how this is affecting children and how can we work better? And it's one of those bright spots in life. It really is. What a wonderful way to close on the importance of children's health and maybe a, a way to kind of reduce the, the friction and barriers between us. So. Thank you so much, Jeff, for, for joining us today. I really appreciate your wisdom. Thanks for having me. Great. Well, I'm Dr. Isha Decide. Thanks for checking out today's show. Remember to do your part to flatten the curve and raise the line. We're all in this together. For more information on how you can help raise the line and flatten the curve, go to osmosis.org slash COVID-19. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our podcasts at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast. <laughs>